0: stories from your community. This is the 519 Podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.
1: When you think about unlikely friendships in the time of war, you might think back to one of the most famous ones, the First World War's Christmas Truce, where Allied and German forces had a ceasefire for the duration of Christmas Day. They climbed out of their trenches to meet in no man's land, sharing gifts with each other, drinking together, and even playing soccer. This all happened despite the fact that they were hours removed from trying to kill each other. It was an incredible event that showed that reconciliations could happen, even between opposing armies. When it comes to the Second World War, forgiveness and reconciliation seemed a little more far-fetched. This is Adolf Hitler's army with the objective of global Nazi rule. The death and destruction that came on the battlefield was bad enough, but the discovery of death camps where so many Jewish people were slaughtered made finding common ground with enemy soldiers a much more difficult proposition. Put the emotions of disgust aside and accept that not every German soldier had a hand in those atrocities and that they were not all fanatical Nazis is something that many people still have a hard time accepting even today. But having lived through it on the open waters of the Atlantic Ocean under the constant threat of U-boat torpedoes, this sort of realization would seem even more unfathomable. And it was, unless your name was Joe Egan. The 519 Podcast presents Befriending the Enemy, Joe Egan's War.
2: He enlisted in 1942. At this stage, uh, Germany was winning the war, so it was a it was a very tough time. Germany and Japan were uh, on the march. They were allies were in retreat everywhere. It looked like the dictatorships were going to overwhelm the democracies and enslave the entire world. Joe was one of the, over a million Canadians who volunteered to, to stop them, who uh, put his life on the line. He was in the North Atlantic for two and a half years. And he knew it was dangerous and he was afraid, but he went out
0: every time and did his job. That was Dan McCafferty, published author and co-writer of the upcoming book, Embracing the Enemy, about Joe Egan's war experience. Joe Egan was assigned to the Prince Rupert, a brand new ship at the time, joining the Royal Canadian Navy's fleet of warships crossing the North Atlantic. The assignment came with the obvious dangers of enemy vessels, but a lesser recognized threat played the most dominant role.
2: The biggest things he talked about was the weather. The North Atlantic in the wintertime can be extraordinarily rough. There were fifty-foot waves, and they, they, it, they were in danger at times, especially on the Niagara, of capsizing. It was freezing cold. Men were washed overboard, and you couldn't get them back. And uh, it was the weather was a big problem. Of course, they never knew where the U-boats were. They they roamed all the way from uh, Germany to. Down to Venezuela, and uh, all the way up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States, and of course, right across the North Atlantic. And you never knew where they were. They lurked underwater, and they could strike at any time, so you you had to be on your toes all the time. 24 hours a day, you you could be attacked.
0: The U-boats were the biggest predator to the Allied warships, being able to stalk their targets often without detection. Their effectiveness early in the war was widely known and terrifying. This is Phil Egan. Sarnia historian, and the son of Joe Egan. In
3: 1941, when U-575 was first launched, um, the German submarine fleet were sinking merchant ships at a rate of 16 to 1. By 1942, they were destroying 13 merchant ships for every sub they lost. By 1943, that ratio had fallen to 2 to 1 in Germany's favor. But by 1944, The German Navy was losing one submarine for every merchant ship that they sunk.
0: Though the U-boats were losing their effectiveness, there were a few that maintained a dominant record against the Allies, one of which was the infamous U-575, a celebrated U-boat in Germany, renowned by the propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels.
2: It was one of Germany's more successful U-boats, they sank or critically damaged a dozen Allied ships and shot down one Allied warplane. They were, um, for over two years, they were the terror of the North Atlantic. The, the average U-boat sank three Allied ships and they got a dozen. And they were, they were a very skilled and uh, dangerous crew.
0: Needless to say, when the U-575 set out for its 10th war patrol, it left the port with national acclaim. It was the terror of the North Atlantic and the numbers backed that up. But the tides were turning in the war, and unscathed deployments were few and far between for the U-boats. Eventually, U-575 would meet its match.
3: What really triggered the the final battle was on the night of March 10th, 1944, U-575 spotted a British aircraft carrier, HMS Stryker. And she lined up to take a shot, but as she did, one of the two corvettes that were uh, sailing with Stryker spotted U five seventy five and gave chase. And uh, you know, it was a it was a, a real tragedy what happened because as the corvette was racing towards U five seventy five, they sent all of her depth charges to explode at a hundred feet, and. U five seventy five executed an emergency crash dive, but as she dove, she fired off a stern torpedo at this pursuing corvette, and it was a lucky shot. It it hit HMS Asphodel, which immediately began to list heavily to one side. Now the crew were well trained, and when the captain gave the order to abandon ship, all ninety seven crew members were able to uh, to get into uh, into lifeboats. But then as, as you know, tragedy struck, because as Asphodel hit the 100-foot level in the Atlantic, all of her pre-primed torpedoes went off, and an enormous fireball roared up from the ocean's depth and destroyed all of these crammed lightboats. And in the end, all but three of the warship's 97-man crew were killed.
0: The deaths of these 94 men enraged the Allied ships within the vicinity, leading to a vengeful hunt in retaliation. The U-575 had effectively become the North Atlantic Ocean's number one target. In the desperate chase of the U-boat, an Allied bomber was able to drop an explosive on the vessel. That resulted in a punctured fuel tank. The U-575 was now leaving a trail of oil everywhere it went, and it was easily detectable by Allied ships. One of the ships on its trail was the Prince Rupert.
3: The most sophisticated sonar, as it turned out, was aboard Prince Rupert. And so when all three warships uh, found uh, the location of the submerged submarine, Prince Rupert started uh, to coordinate a a sort of a synchronized three-ship attack on the sub. Um, dropping depth charges one after the other. You know, one ship would move in and drop its charges and then move out for another. And all in all, some 200 depth charges were dropped on U-575. You know, aboard the sub, it was chaos. The, every instrument was shattered. Uh, men were, you know, sloshing around in, in water above their knees. Um, to make matters even more terrifying, every light on the sub had been blown out, and fires were starting to break out. So Wolfgang, Wolfgang Bömer, the commander of the submarine, decided he had to surface. When it broke the water, this, Prince Rupert was the only one of the three warships that was in a position to immediately train fire on it. And it started six seconds after the sub surfaced. It was raining fire down, and all the Germans were pouring onto her decks trying to return fire by U-575's deck guns. But then um, an Avenger aircraft from the American aircraft carrier, Bogue, dropped uh, its bomb payload on her a mere 50 feet above the sub. And that that was the final blow. She immediately began
0: to sink. Eighteen German sailors were killed during this battle. Another 37 were thrown into the freezing water and rescued by these three Allied warships. Fourteen of them were brought aboard the Prince Rupert. Joe Egan helped haul the enemy sailors aboard which seemed to surprise them since German vessels had a strict no-rescue rule when it came to enemy ships, and they thought this would be the wartime norm. What further surprised the Germans was that they received clothing, chocolate bars, and cigarettes. They assumed a torturous trip to prison was coming. Some even expected an execution. But what they got were some of the small things they missed while they were at sea. They were held captive on the Prince Rupert for 10 days under the watch of Joe Egan, And it was during this time that Joe found a surprising camaraderie with the prisoners. He realized these were not fanatical Nazi thugs. They were just ordinary sailors doing their jobs. This humanized them to Joe, erasing the glaring hatred he may have felt. The German soldiers also returned the sentiment.
3: They'd grown so so fond of my dad that they actually... um, One of the the, uh, German sailors had a bit of an artistic bent. So he, he actually sketched out on a piece of paper, using colored pencils, um, a sketch of the submarine U-575. And above it, he he drew a picture in profile of a German sailor in uniform. And all 14 of the German prisoners signed it. And, um, you know, I can, I can remember when I was growing up, uh, you know, my father sort of treasured this thing because it was the only keepsake he had from the sinking of U-575, and he, he kept it in a, in a glass case.
0: This is Mary Jane Egan, daughter of Joe and co-author of Embracing the Enemy.
4: He had a, a tiny notebook that he had kept in his wallet all those years. Um, these Germans were expecting, you know, n- not, a, they weren't even sure if they were going to live And instead, they got the odd, uh, you know, chocolate bar and cigarette. And so they had had written notes in this uh, notebook my dad kept in his wallet. And he never got them translated until just before going to Germany. And one had written, thank you for saving us ordinary seamen. And another wrote, um, with you it was like being with friends and we will be forever grateful. So... You know, even back then, uh, these guys realized that, uh, that they had been saved, and, uh, and they were grateful.
0: The prisoners were eventually dropped off in St. John's, where they would stay until after the war. It was figured to be the last time Joe or anyone from the Prince Rupert would see them. But what Joe would later learn at a Prince Rupert reunion in 1985 was that one of his former shipmates had been able to track down the captain of U-575 to see what became of the crew.
4: Mert Alcorn was his name. He had happened to track down um, Wolfgang Bohmer, the captain of the German U-575, just to kind of try to get an update on, you know, how the surviving... Germans were faring, and Wolfgang Bohmer uh, informed Merck that every year on March 13th, which is the uh, the day that the uh, U-575 was sunk by the Prince Rupert and two other ships, every year on that date the Germans held a whole the whole reunion. Um, they call it their second birthday um, because they are so grateful that they were plucked out of the ocean that day.
0: The surviving members of U-575 were eternally grateful to the Prince Rupert, much more than they would have thought. But to look at it through the lens of the German sailors, they received a second shot at life. Fatefully, the captain of the U-575, Wolfgang Bomer, invited members of the Prince Rupert to their next reunion, a way of showing gratitude. The invitation, of course, was a difficult one to consider. This
2: wasn't the Kaiser's World War One Germany. This was a, this was the vile Nazi murderous regime, and these guys weren't responsible for what was going on, but they were they were helping it, and uh, it's kind of hard to get past that that they were they were um, fighting for Nazi Germany. But uh, in the end, he saw them just as people and just as victims themselves, and he didn't. Joe did not believe in collective guilt. He didn't think all Germans were guilty of what had happened. He just saw them as ordinary sailors doing their duty like he was.
0: Every single member of the Prince Rupert crew turned the invitation down. Except for Joe. He saw this as a chance for reconciliation. But accepting an invitation of this sort came with a lot of questions. Not everyone understood it. And not everyone would get behind it.
2: There was criticism from the veterans in Sarnia from some members of the, the Royal Canadian Legion. I don't think from the Legion itself, but from some uh, Legion members. There was criticism from the Navy club. Again, not from the actual club, but from some of their members. Some of his shipmates told him, frankly, I, I wouldn't have anything to do with these people. They nearly won the war, and I, I saw too many dead bodies floating in the ocean, and I, I, could never, uh, I could never go meet them. I didn't want
0: nothing to do with them. The amount of death and grief caused by the Germans had Joe even questioning himself.
4: Part of the problem had been shortly before, shortly after Mom and Dad committed to this trip to Germany, they, it came to light exactly the war record of this U-575. I think because the crew was so young, um, there was the perception that this might have been their you know, first or second uh Uh, assignment. But it turned out that they were the terror of Allied convoys. Um, More than 500 Allied personnel were dead because of the B-575. They had sunk uh, several Allied ships. They'd even blown a a warplane out of the sky. So Dad started to have second thoughts about, you know, why should we be going over to Germany to, to... sit down and break bread with these fellows.
0: But in the middle of the indecision and the self-doubt, Joe received something that seemed to settle his worries. Wolfgang Balmer
3: had sent my dad a copy of the U-575 logbook. And he, you know, he really enjoyed reading it. But he found in it a number of signs of, you know, really what what was shared humanity. I mean, there was one example where you know, the U-boat, strictly, strictly against orders. They were never allowed to pick anyone up. But they had come across, um, you know, one lone um, sailor in in the cold, freezing Atlantic waters who was definitely bound to freeze to death, and they they stopped and picked them up. There was the time when, you know, uh, word came from Germany that one of the crew members had become a father, and the celebration on board. These were things that dad could identify with. They were similar to things that would happen on Prince Rupert. So, you know, there was this realization that these were, you know, just men like him.
0: Joe and his wife, bravely, stuck to their word. They decided to go. And waiting for them across the pond was none other than Wolfgang Bomer, who had invited them to stay with him in his family's home. When they arrived at the reunion, they received a reception far greater than what they could have imagined.
2: He wondered how he would be received. He was afraid that, but as he said, they remembered the 34 that were rescued and not the 18 that died. And of course, the captain, Wolfgang Balmer, was, uh, he stayed with the captain at his house and the captain brought him to the reunion and introduced him to, to the crew and their families. And, uh, of course, the, the captain was a deeply respected fellow with the German sailors, and uh, if the captain said Joe Egan and his wife, June, were okay, then uh, then they were going to give him a chance. And they, he spent a week in Germany and with several of these German uh, crew members at their houses, and he, they took him around to show him the sights. And Mainly, he, he just got to know them, and he got to know their children and grandchildren. And as he said, if they'd been successful in killing these men, they wouldn't have had any of these children or grandchildren.
3: They wouldn't let them pay for anything. I mean, after the actual reunion itself, um, different U-575 crew members took them on a tour to Berlin. Some of them lived in Berlin and toured them around the city, took them to the Brandenburg Gate and Checkpoint Charlie and
0: showed them all around. Despite the friendliness and warm reception Joe received, he still had some questions that he wanted answers to he still wanted to understand how these men, whom he was clearly getting along with, could ever have been swept into the influence of the Nazi regime.
2: When he went to meet them in Germany 50 years after the war, he uh, questioned them very closely about the Nazis, and he was uh, quite relieved to find out that they thought Hitler uh, after the war. Many of them admitted, quite frankly, that they'd been admirers of Hitler and the Nazis during the war, but they'd been subjected to propaganda all their lives, a very vile Nazi propaganda. But after the war was over and they found out what the Nazis had been up to, they were disgusted by them. They told him, uh, at the reunion, uh, one of them stood up and said to him in perfect English, uh, Hitler is a madman, you can tell your people this sort of thing will never happen again. And uh, Joe gave a speech in German, he had been practicing German, and um, he got a standing ovation it was really reconciliation and forgiveness for, from both sides
4: they they made it clear they were germans but not nazis that they were following orders and uh you know in retrospect they realized the you know the the horror that they had inadvertently kind of become involved with but dad really appreciated that um these guys were not that much different you know from from him and his buddies they were young they were in their 20s they were following orders and uh, it, it was very reassuring I think to to both sides uh, to, to get to know each other and to to stay in contact and to become essentially friends
0: when Joe came back to Canada it was clear the trip had a major impact on him. It was proof that even the hardest of reconciliations can happen, and the most unlikely pleas for forgiveness could be granted. And when he looked back at the trip in his later years, he wouldn't have changed a thing.
2: He said he never regretted it. He he, uh, thought others should have gone. He thought it was important. His wife said that uh, there's the the hymn in church, uh, let there be peace on earth, and let it begin with me. And he said, she said, with Joe, those just weren't words. He, he meant them, and he, his kids joked that he would become a peacenik, but uh, you know he was against the the war in Iraq when Canada was talking about joining the United States and that very ill-fated invasion. He, he was, he had become a man. He had seen war, and he thought it should be avoided if at all possible.
4: I think after meeting the Germans that that was certainly part of it um, he uh, he did he became anti-war and um, he in fact uh, he wrote a letter to the editor opposing the the war in Iraq um, he ultimately actually um, turned in his membership to the Legion and I know that was uh, a very heart-wrenching, difficult decision. But um, he did that when the Legion had banned uh, um, headgear, um, turbans, um, and he felt, you know, this is part of why we fought for for the freedom to be able to, you know, uh, display your your religious beliefs. So that was very difficult for him, but I think that's part of where the... <laughs> the peacenet came from he uh he he definitely uh appreciated the importance of of forgiveness and and the the importance of avoiding war at all costs
0: in the context of today when the political divide seems to be growing by the day there are lessons to be taken from this story and morals that could be plucked from joe egan and used in our everyday lives
4: it was uh, A lesson in in forgiveness that we really need to hear, especially today when, you know, the the world is, uh, you know, gone a little bit mad. And uh, I think my father would look down today and think, what were we fighting for, you know, to to ensure uh, freedom and democracy when you see what's happening now?
1: This episode of the 519 Podcast was written and produced by Patrick Maggermans. It was hosted by Scott Kitchen.
0: The 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.